All right, we have now made it to the final installment of our four-week vision series that we have called Future Grace. And what we have sought to do over the past month is to provide a picture for you, a picture of the kind of church we increasingly are longing to become. Uh, so the, the idea of kind of zooming the lens out, if, if we saw a picture of Grace Church five years from now, ten years from now, what could that look like? And then at the same time, we want to provide a pathway to carve out uh, to that place, to that picture, uh, that ensures that we are all going to be heading in the same direction. And so uh, kind of, as we begin to finish this series, let me just say um, that we, we care a lot about vision at Grace Church. We put a lot of time and thought and prayer into this vision. But I just want to also be clear and make no mistake that I am far less passionate about our vision with a little v than I am about feeding into God's vision with a capital V. God's vision to deploy his church to glorify his name and make disciples of all nations. And so we strive to be faithful with our little V vision here, and we pray to be fruitful. We strive to be faithful, and we pray to be fruitful, but we ultimately are going to trust that fruit to him. And so what I mean by that is that our goals here at Grace Church have never been and never will be numeric, meaning I've never stepped into a staff meeting or an elder meeting and says, guys, I want to be this big by this date. That's not our goal. We don't have a size goal. We have a faithfulness goal. And if God wants to continue to grow our size as he has been, and we're to the point where maybe we're a church of 500 or 750 or 1,000 uh, by 2030, then let's go. Let's steward that well. And if we're going to remain the church that we are now across two services, about 350 to 400 on a weekend, let's go. Let's be faithful. And if things happen where we end up being a church of 200 and we're planting other churches of 100 to 200, man, let's go and let's be faithful. And so um, the, the picture that we have painted, and I'm going to read now, is not a fruitful vision, but a faithful vision. And uh, thank you to Mary, our communications director, who put together this card. I, I think uh, you guys got it along with your bulletin when you came in. Uh, we'll also have it on the screen. Uh, but here is the kind of narrative picture that we are providing for us at Grace. We are a passionate faith community on a journey together to disrupt the suburban pursuit of comfort and complacency. Rather than leading lives that are overwhelmingly busy and underwhelmingly impactful, we will raise up and deploy hundreds of people transformed by the gospel and spiritually formed in Christ for ministries of mercy and multiplication. And together we know Christ and are equipped to make him known in the ways we commit to gather, grow, give, and go. And there's the pathway. We gather weekly as a faith family to exalt the name of God in a way that encourages us in the grace of the gospel and welcomes every age and background to encounter the love of Christ. We value an embodied communal setting where people don't prioritize personal desires at the expense of others and where faith is both awakened and strengthened through the elements of the gathering. We grow by being intentionally engaged with one another throughout the week as the transformative power of the gospel frees us from the bondage of entitled privacy and relational isolation and ushers us into a faith family where we are truly known and loved as we are formed into the image of Christ. Next, we give sacrificially of our time, treasure, and talents in a way that is marked by generosity for the sake of living out our callings and giftings to build up one another in the fullness of Christ, as well as address personal and systemic needs that promote human flourishing. Finally, 
we go as ambassadors of God to prioritize ministries of mercy and multiplication in the unique ways God has called and gifted us, seeking to come alongside and advocate for marginalized groups in our local community and be involved in the planting and revitalization of healthy churches locally, regionally, and globally. Let it be true. And this card uh, is yours. Let me encourage you, uh, maybe slip it in your Bible, put it somewhere by your desk, put it somewhere where you will get eyes on it. And I hope and we hope that this vision does not end with the conclusion of this sermon series. Um, But this morning we will conclude the series by focusing on the final G. What does it look like to be a church that commits to go? And with that said, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. And the passage that we're going to read uh, takes place the evening that Jesus rose from the dead. It is the original Lord's Day. The first Easter Sunday. At this point in the Gospel of John, he's already revealed himself to Mary and told Mary to go and tell the disciples. And then we get down to verse 19 where we're going to pick it up and we're going to read to verse 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This morning, we are going to focus on verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This single line is John's version of the Great Commission. Uh, The most well-known and quoted Great Commission, Commission passage in the four Gospels is in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples. It's the most quoted, most well-known. But John's version is a single sentence. And yet, as is often the case in Scripture, it is a little sentence that says a whole lot. And that when God inspires his people, when God casts vision to his people in Scripture, it's not big, powerful, extraordinary wording. It is often simple and clear wording from a big, powerful, extraordinary God. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. This commission has two parts that we will look at, and then we will apply it to this series, Future Grace. Two parts, a promise to the church and a purpose for the church. Starting with number one, a promise to the church. And the promise is this. Peace be with you. Notice that John wrote in verse 21, Jesus said to them again. He already said it to them once he appeared in the room, a locked room, by the way. But he had to say it again to the disciples who, understandably, were experiencing um, unbelievable emotional whiplash at this point. Like, it has been a week for the disciples. 
high highs and low lows. That very morning, Mary, who's the only one to go to the tomb initially with a couple other women, came to them and said, I saw Jesus. We know from the other Gospels that a couple of them ran to the tomb to check it out, didn't find Jesus, neither his body nor a living Jesus, and they came back by the evening of that night, and they're back in a room, a locked room, out of fear. And then Jesus, in his resurrected body, appears in the room. But he's not a ghost. He's in the flesh, which is why he still shows them the marks in his hands from the nails that pierced them. He shows the scar in his side from the spear that was driven into him. So those are there, but he's healed. Go ahead and think about that for a little while. He's got the marks, but he's resurrected in his new body. So there's a lot going on for the disciples in this little locked room. So yes, Jesus had to say to them again, peace be with you. But with these words, I don't think Jesus is only trying to calm them down in the moment or give them assurance in the moment. He's declaring a promise that has now been secured. You have peace with God. The concept of peace represents what I think is a universal longing that all people have, whether you are religious or non-religious. There seems to be, in a world where there's so much division, uh, this kind of bedrock universal agreement that life's meaning is how to find peace in this world. We're all after it. It's held in high regard by Eastern religions like Buddhism, where the fundamental goal of Buddhism is peace. Islam, in their holy book, the Quran, calls it the ways of the, quote, paths of peace. The ways of Islam, according to their book, are the paths of peace. It's held high regard in uh, secularism or humanism or atheism, whatever word you kind of want to put in there, um, that the, the, the highest goal for every person is to live at peace with yourself. Can you wake up in the morning and say, I'm at, I'm at peace with myself? The Unitarian Church right here in Ridgewood has on their statement of faith on their website that the goal of world community and their local community is peace for all. Inclusive religions, exclusive religions, no religions. This ironic common denominator in human nature seems to be a, a desire for, a striving for peace. So maybe you hear that and you could say, um, well, I mean, doesn't that prove the point that Christianity is really not that different from everything else? Isn't everything just the same at its core, maybe different icing on top, a different way to the same hope? But here's the difference. In Christianity, peace is first a promise, not a command. Meaning, we cannot make peace in ourselves. And every other worldview claims to know how to make peace. Whether peace with a higher power, whether peace amongst yourself, peace with others, uh, that every worldview has the pathway to make peace. But it's a command. If you do these things, if you live this way, if you follow our rules, 
you will make peace. But at the end of the day, it's on you. It's on you. But Jesus didn't come and give the command to make peace. He came and delivered the promise, peace be with you. The gospel says that you don't find your way to God. God found his way to you. For he sent his only son to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission, you see. And he made peace with us by dying on the cross. And he really died. Jesus was dead. Which is why he here is saying, guys, look at my hands. Look at my side. That was real. I was dead. I was buried. But I died for you. I shed my blood for you. And in doing so, I took the judgment of your sin onto myself. And now the Father has raised me from the dead, and death has been conquered, peace has been accomplished, and now peace is offered for those who receive me by faith, by believing that the sin has been forgiven, by believing that you've been washed clean by my atoning work for you. You see, there's a universal need for peace, and that's evident in this passage, but there's also a personal need. You have a need for peace. These disciples had a need in this room for peace. Uh, do you remember Jesus' last interaction with these um, disciples that now he is standing with? Um, that they abandoned him. These disciples abandoned Jesus when he got arrested just three days prior. That is their last interaction. Peter, especially, denied him not once, not twice but three times after saying he never would. Denied him three times leading up to the crucifixion. And now Jesus is here. What do you think is going through Peter's mind? How will he treat me? How is this going to go? Uh, earlier in this series, I, I brought up the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 uh, in another context, but I, I had myself thinking about that again here in this passage. The younger son is returning to his father's home, head down in shame, bracing for the wrath and judgment that he expected to get after all he has done, to reject his father, to reject his family name, and now he's returning because he's got nothing else, and he's coming down, head down in shame. How will my dad react? And yet, he was received with love and peace. Peace to you. That's why Paul writes in Romans, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. No one ever came into the kingdom of heaven by being shamed into it or being by commanded into it. Nobody's been commanded to be a Christian ever. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance for his peace overpowers our chaos and our fear. Um, I've shared before about this, and then when we, when we do the foundations class each year, I, I unpack this even more, but um, if you ask the question, like, what actually happened at the fall? When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, what actually happened there? What was fractured? What was broken? Now, you, you can say four relationships were broken at the fall, and we'll have them up on the screen. Um, the relationship between humans and God was broken. Humans and the creative order, broken. 
humans and one another, fractured, ruptured, and humans and themselves. It was broken. You cannot be at peace with yourself, with God, with others, with creative order. And now, in this one little line, we are told explosively that by his death and now by his resurrection, the ruptures of, those, of that fall have been healed. Peace with God. Peace with the creative order. Peace with one another. Peace with themselves. All right. John Calvin sums it up this way. Um, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. That is what has been accomplished now. Peace to you. This is the best part of the good news because there's a universal longing for peace and there's a personal longing for peace, which is why the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Ephesus and all the division that they're experiencing with one another, he writes them this, Ephesians 2, 14 to 18, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Peace be with you. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the foundation of our hope and the question that confronts us right out of the text this morning. Is Jesus your peace? Can you say that? Is he the foundation of your peace? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with yourself? Did you know, I hope you know, that you are not expected to make peace, but to receive the one and believe in the one who made peace. So this little line that says a lot not only declares a promise to the church, but it also declares a purpose for the church. And so we move to number two. What is the purpose for the church? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And Jesus doesn't, again, just give a command on its own. Okay, now you're on your own. Good luck. We'll meet you at the end. No, he commissions the church in the same way the Father commissioned him. Again, as the Father sent me, don't skip over that, as he sent me, so now I am sending you. Well, how did the Father send the Son? He sent him into a world of darkness. He sent Jesus not to conquer, but to serve. He was sent to preach the gospel, to proclaim peace, and then ultimately to give his life for the kingdom. Jesus came and was sent to shine the light, 1 Corinthians says, to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into our hearts and to spread the kingdom of God. Jesus was in the business of mercy and multiplication. 
And now he commissions his disciples to carry this calling forward. The followers of Jesus Christ together are a sent people. Let us not forget that at any time in our walk with Christ, as we seek to gather and grow and give, that we are primarily a sent people. Sent to represent Jesus Christ. Sent to serve as his hands and his feet. And we go as he went. Meaning, we go into a world of darkness. The church is not called to hide. The church is not called to hide from the world, but to go into the world. This is important, that we are called also not to conquer. Let us not forget, we have not been called to conquer, but to serve. To shine that same light and to proclaim peace with God through the gospel. To spread the kingdom of God and ultimately to give our lives for the glory of God. This is a promise to the church and the purpose for the church. And this purpose is why a central aspect of our vision at Grace Church, both now and in the future, is a commitment to go. A commitment to be sent. And we see the flow in this series. We see the flow all throughout Scripture of believers that gather and grow near to know Christ, to grow in your affections for God, to be equipped, and then to carry out the purpose to go. We don't gather and stay. We gather, and then we go, and then we gather again, and then we go. And we go and we be sent to proclaim peace with God, just as the Father sent me, so I send you. And so this is where we do get to our little vision with our little V that is important. What does it look like for us right now, in our suburban context, in 2022, to be a sent people? We walk the path Jesus walked And we go towards a world in need with a posture to serve and proclaim, which is to say we too, like him, will focus on mercy and multiplication. The ministry of mercy and the ministry of multiplication. Starting with the ministry of mercy. What do we mean when we say this? It means simply this. We care for real people's bodies. Amen? We care for real people's bodies and for these systems that support people in need. And we do that first and foremost within our own faith community where we are always looking to care for one another, to care for one another's whole bodies. And then we do it as a faith community to the world that surrounds us, to the world that we are sent into. And so what we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus did not limit his merciful power to those who agreed with him. He didn't only extend mercy to his disciples. He extended mercy widely out of a wellspring of his own character. And he focused his mercy on those people and places that needed it most. And so we seek and will continually seek to come alongside and advocate for marginalized groups in our surrounding community. And those include physical needs. Those include emotional needs. The felt needs people have are not just physical, they are increasingly emotional. We deal with bodies deprived of food and minds deprived of joy, mercy of ministry. And we know at Grace Church we cannot address everything, for no single church can, but every single church can address something. Let me say that again. We can't address everything. Wish we could. We are one church, 
And yet, every single church can address something. What will we address? What will we invest ourselves into? Future Grace is a faith community that increasingly extends mercy by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us. And then number two, we think about the ministry of multiplication. That we care for real people's souls. And we seek to multiply healthy churches through church planting and revitalization locally and regionally and globally. And again, how are we going to do that? Like that feels big. That feels uh, maybe unattainable at times. But we need to remember, always come back to the word. We don't need something new. We need to deliver that which we are witnesses of. How do we do it? We proclaim peace. We proclaim peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace Church, our purpose is to proclaim the promise of peace. Is that your purpose? As you think about your life and all the different aspects of it and where you want to look back on your life someday, if the Lord gives you into old age and you can look back and say, what was my purpose in my life? What did I give myself to? Let it be true that our purpose is to proclaim the promise of peace. We proclaim it to one another in our gatherings each week, knowing that once we believe, we need to be reminded of it again and again. We're just like the disciples in the upper room, doors locked, living in fear. We need to hear it again. Jesus said to them, again, Grace Church, again, peace to you. We are a forgetful people. And the theme from cover to cover of the Bible is the call to remember. Most Sundays, you will never learn something new. But every Sunday, you will be reminded of what you already know. And we need it again. We need to remember who you are in Christ. Remember the power of Christ in you. Remember the purpose you've been called to. And remember, church, how this story ends. So we proclaim it to one another. We also proclaim it in the individual mission fields that God has scattered us among when we leave our gathering. We gather and we're equipped and then we go. And if we have a couple hundred people in this room right now of all every ages, we have a couple hundred mission fields in this room. That you have a unique mission field that no one else has in this room. I can't go there. Christy can't go there. The, the person in front of you can't go there. You're there. But you're not there alone. You scatter, empowered by your gathering. Know that we go together in our unique callings. We now, in the context of the relationships in the mission fields that where we are we understand that now this is our business. This commission of John 21 is still on the books for us. It is still active. It's still working. And if we commit truly to know Christ and make him known in the ways that we gather and grow and give and go, we will see the long-term vision come to life. That 10 years from now, this vision will not be uh, uh, words written on a nice little card. It won't be words just displayed on a screen. It will be a culture imprinted on a people in this church. Mark Dever, a pastor down in D.C., he often tells pastors in churches, and I come back to this quote often, he says this, quote, People often overestimate what can be done in the short term and underestimate what can be done in the long term. Let me say it again. People often overestimate what can be done in the short term. 
and they often underestimate what can be done in the long term. So, Grace Church, don't expect everything to happen in a single year, in a single sermon series. Let us think together what can happen in five years, in ten years, in fifteen years, if we commit to faithfulness to the call to gather, to grow, give, and go. And so now as we wind down, we ask ourselves this, are we willing to believe it? It's a hard question at times. We hear it, are we willing to believe it? Are you willing to believe that God in 2022, in the suburban context of the Northeast, can see revival take place? For his namesake. And so when I say revival, what do I mean when I say revival? I don't mean we make revival. I mean God makes revival. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor uh, in the 20th century in England, wrote a book simply called Revival. Uh, He writes this, quote, At its foundation, revival is desiring to see God's glory and have an inner passionate desire for the glory of God and to see it revealed and spread. So what we long to see today, Lloyd-Jones writes, is a passionate desire for God's presence and power and a special outpouring of the Spirit that leads to a phenomena and great assurance of truth and a church filled with a great sense of praise and joy. You see, revival starts in the church. And then it stretches out to a world in need. And it starts in a church that does not seek to conquer but seeks to compel the world with the gospel. Church that spreads and where its people go. And then more churches are raised up. And then people in those churches are raised up. And then they go. And on and on and on it goes until glory. And so as we think about future grace, let us join the chorus of the local churches that are working to the ends of the earth. Let us see ourselves written into the story of what God is doing and let us play our part. Let's go. I'm going to finish by giving us a little picture of what this has looked like from the moment Jesus appeared to the disciples here, probably around 33 AD. And from this moment, things started to go. And the church remained in the Middle East, remained in Jerusalem for a period of years. But then it began to go. And so buckle up and try to keep up. In 42 AD, church history tells us that Mark first went to Egypt. 49 AD, Paul heads to Turkey. 51 AD, Paul goes to modern-day Europe, to Greece for the first time. 52, the apostle Thomas goes to India. 54 AD, Paul goes on his third missionary journey. 174 AD, the first Christians are reported in modern-day Austria. 280, the first royal churches are reported in northern Italy. 350 AD, there are now 31.7 million people confessing Christ. That is over half of the Roman Empire. 432 AD, Patrick heads to Ireland. 596 AD, Augustine is sent to England. 635 AD, the first missionaries arrive in China. 740 AD, uh, Irish Christians head to Iceland. 900 AD, missionaries get up to Norway. Thank you, Jesus. All right, 1200 AD, the Bible is now available in 22 languages. 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. 
1554, there are 1,500 converts reported in present-day Thailand. 1630, mission is established in current-day El Paso, Texas, to reach the Mason tribe. 1639, British Colony's first church is founded in Jamestown, Virginia. 1660, New Jersey's first church, called the Old Bergen Church, is founded in modern-day Jersey City. 1746, Christians founded Princeton University in New Jersey, founded by pastors in order to train upcoming pastors. 1812, Princeton Theological Seminary is officially founded, speeding up to 1915. From April 4th to May 23rd, this evangelist named Billy Sunday did a campaign in Patterson. From this campaign, a woman's Bible study began, and it began to grow over a period of 10 years. While waiting for his wife to be done with the study, a man decided that maybe men should have something like this too. And a men's study began renting out Lafayette on a, the fire hall on Lafayette Ave in Hawthorne. Eventually, these Bible studies converged. They began a children's program. And over the next few years, they led to the planting of Hawthorne Gospel Mission, later to be named Hawthorne Gospel Church in 1932. In 1934, Herman Braunland would be invited to be the pastor there, and that church began to grow quickly. Then in the 1940s, a member of Hawthorne Gospel Church named Larry McGill began Bible studies in various homes in the town of Ridgewood. Larry McGill would go on to plant several churches, including Wyckoff Baptist, which is now Cornerstone Church, Fairdale Trinity in Mawa, and this little community called Ridgewood Bible Fellowship in 1946. 1947, Ridgewood Bible Fellowship purchased property at the corner of Meadowbrook and Libby Avenues, and they began a building project. 1950, a man named David Marshall graduates from Princeton Theological Seminary enters the pastorate at this little church in the midst of a building campaign which was renamed Grace Church of Ridgewood. And he would serve there for the next 36 years. And that is the long way of making a simple point that we are worshiping God right now in Ridgewood, New Jersey in 2022 because a group of men and women that Jesus appeared to in Jerusalem the night he was raised from the dead obeyed the commission to go, to be sent. So yes, let us pray for revival in the long term. And let us get to work and commit to faithfulness in the day-to-day -day here and now. And I'm going to pray in a moment. And then we are going to... Respond by standing and singing together the hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It was written by a man named Charles Wesley in 1739, who wrote it to commemorate the one-year anniversary of his awakening to faith, the one-year anniversary of his conversion. And then Charles and his brother John would play a meaningful role in the Great Awakening, a time of revival in England and surrounding countries, as well as the British colonies that would, in time, become the United States. Here are two verses we're about to sing. Don't worry, I will read them. <laughs> Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean.
his blood availed for me. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We thank you for simple, clear lines in scripture that say a lot. We thank you for a grand vision that is casted by you, carried out by your son, and empowered by your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that we stand here this morning on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years of men and women who have been faithful in carrying out their purpose to proclaim peace. Father, let it be true for us that we see our part in the story. That we understand what you've empowered us to do. Give us the courage to carry it out and let us do it together, Lord. And let us join the chorus of the global church singing out of gratitude and worship for your glory. And let it spur us on for another day. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in song?